Talking Travel. And Sally Lucas, it's coming up to that time. So why not think about Christmas? It's holiday time. It is. And a lot of people are on holidays at this time of the year. And I just thought, even though I'm not strictly talking travel today in that sense, I thought we'd talk about some of the origins of Christmas and the way Christmas is celebrated. Because if you are travelling, it'd be nice to follow in with the customs of that country wherever you may happen to be and share the way in which they celebrate, which is different from the way we do in Australia, of and course. And it is an important uh, celebration in the countries where yes, it's celebrated. where it is celebrated. I mean, there are some countries who don't really celebrate it as an, a, a religious event, but they still like to have the lights and the Christmas and, the you know, they have the shopping. They mightn't have the public holidays, some do, but it does, it does get celebrated in a lot of countries when you start doing your research. It's amazing how many countries do, even though they might not be of Christian faith. So there you go. Quite interesting. So I just thought we'd talk a little bit about some of the origins of things associated with Christmas. And, of course, the origin is... Christus Mass, which means the Mass of Christ, and that was how the story of Christmas began with the birth of the babe in Bethlehem. And um, it was believed that he was born on the 25th, they say, but the exact month apparently was unknown, and December was chosen as the most likely by the Catholic Church, so it could compete with rival pagan rituals held at that time of the year. Isn't that interesting? Take them over. Yeah, and because of its closeness with the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere, um, you know, it became a traditional time of celebration amongst ancient cultures. The origin of Santa Claus, however, it began in the 4th century with St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra, in an area of present-day Turkey. And by all accounts, he was apparently a very generous man and particularly devoted to children. And after his death around 340 AD, he was buried in Myra. But in 1087, Italian sailors purportedly stole his remains and removed them to Bari in Italy, which is on the um, eastern coast or seaboard. And that greatly increased his uh, St. Nicholas's popularity throughout Europe. So his kindness and reputation for generosity gave rise to claims that he could perform miracles and the devotion to him increased. And he became the patron saint of Russia as well, where he was known by his red cape and flowing white beard and bishop's mitre. Um, in Greece, he's the patron saint of sailors. In France, of lawyers. In Belgium, the patron of children and travellers. So thousands of churches across Europe were dedicated to him. At some time around the 12th century, an official church holiday was created in his honour. And the Feast of St Nicholas was celebrated on December the 6th. And it was the day that was marked by gift giving and charity and charitable donations. Only if you'd been good. Only if, you, if children out there, I'm hoping you're all being exceptionally good or he won't pop down that chimney. Or if you haven't got a chimney, he might come onto your back deck, but you've got to leave the carrots and everything out in the water for the reindeers and a little drink and something to eat for Santa too. After the Reformation, however, European followers of St. Nicholas dwindled, but the legend was kept alive in Holland, where the Dutch spelling of his name, Sint Nicholas, I'm not probably pronouncing that quite correctly, was eventually transformed into Sinterklaas, which is where we get Santa Claus from. And Dutch children would leave their wooden shoes by the fireplace, and Sinterklaas would reward good children, if you're listening, by placing treats in their shoes. So the Dutch colonists brought this tradition with them to America in the 17th century, and there the Anglican name of Santa Claus emerged. 
So interesting, isn't it? Once you start reading up on you know these things of our past and yes, just and, do a bit of research, you know. And it's a, a trip around Europe, basically. Then. Yes, it, it went everywhere before it got to us, I suppose, and much later to us, of course. Um, but there's all sorts of other lovely things you can go online and have a look at about traditions and where Christmas trees and they were firstly decorated in the 16th century and they were they were live trees like fir trees. They were decorated both indoors and out with apples and roses and gilded candies and coloured paper and so it evolved from that and it was supposed to depict like the story of Adam and Eve which hence the apples hanging on the tree and so on so it's yes it's all quite interesting that apparently um, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther first adorned trees with light because while coming home one December evening the beauty of the stars shining through the branches of a fir tree inspired him to recreate the effect by placing candles on the branches of the tree inside his home. So, yeah, wonderful traditions. And, of course, in Europe, they basically celebrated on Christmas Eve. That's the important day for them. And a lot of it, originally, the children had to fast all day to get the sumptuous meal at night and in order to receive the gifts, which they also received on Christmas Eve. So France, Germany, a lot of these countries, it is a Christmas Eve celebration, whereas ours, of course, we're in the old hot country down here. We don't have all the, the cold and the fire and the mulled wine and all that sort of stuff. We break out the champagne and the seafood. Um, but, you know, we celebrate, I suppose, in a different way too because Boxing Day is one of our important days because of the two sporting events that occur on that day, which naturally, of course, is the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race and the famous Cricket Test, which starts in Melbourne. So we celebrate it differently in Australia and Christmas Day is our main celebration and, um, you know, a lot of works parties lead up and have their own celebrations up to that. And then we mainly have the Boxing Day parties and all that sort of thing as well. So, look, there's some lovely things you can read and even about Rudolph and how that started and that was a little book a, a man wrote a poem for his daughter and the book evolved from that poem um, and then his brother actually wrote the words to the song and, and Gene Autry was the first person to record it back in the 1940s I think and so, we all know it now yeah but it's uh, lovely if you want to do a bit of research have a look on it because you can find out lots of different ways you might like to change your celebrations or include some of these interesting things about mistletoe and why it was used and it's quite a good website if you want to have a look at it. I don't know whether I've got it written with me, Jane. I'll just have a look. We'll just Google Christmas But just you just Google Christmas traditions or Christmas celebrations, I think I did, and you'll find this here with all this wonderful information that might just help you celebrate it maybe a little bit differently this year. And Sally Lucas, we are talking travel. That's thanks to our sponsor, Travel World on King. And we're heading off to a warm part of the world. Extremely warm part of the world, actually. If you go there at um, the middle of the year, it'll probably be about 50 degrees. And we're talking about the United Arab Emirates. And in particular today, about Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And there's a little bit of a competition. It's a bit like Sydney and Melbourne, but a little bit more fierce, I think. And they've got more money than we have to do it because they're sitting on this black oil stuff that keeps coming out of the ground. Um, so it's who can build higher, longer and faster between the two of them. And um, as I said, they've got this bottomless ocean of black gold underneath them and can afford the biggest and best of everything. Um, for a long time, it was Dubai breaking the records. But in the last few years, Abu Dhabi has started to spend some of its immense, immense wealth. And between them, the two Emirates have certainly gone to Streams. Now, there's the world's most inclined building is now in Abu Dhabi. It's inclined? In, yes. On a slope? 
Amazing. Inclined as in the Leaning Tower of Pisa, wow. inclined. Intentionally. Right? <laughs> Intentionally. Now, at 18 degrees, the Capitol Gate building in the heart of Abu Dhabi holds the record of the world's most inclined building. So there, isn't that interesting? Part of the Abu Dhabi National Exhibition Centre, it was finally completed in January after three years of construction. And from its summit, you can see the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, which is, uh, isn't the world's biggest mosque, but it's, uh, it's very, um, important to those in Saudi Arabia and, you know, it's, um, it's, it's the last, it's got the planet's apparently largest chandelier and largest carpet. And the queues to go out there, like, it's sort of on your way out back towards Dubai from Abu Dhabi. You'd, you'd have to pay a taxi to wait because there's no actual transport. So unless you're hiring a car, and then you could be there for a long time. So just keep that in mind if you're thinking of coming and having a look at the mosque. Now, the world's tallest building, of course, we've all heard about this for quite some time now, is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, and it's 828 metres, which is almost double the height of the Empire State Building. So it's the tallest building. But uh, it's also got the world's highest nightclub, the world's highest restaurant and highest swimming pool, which are also reached by the world's fastest lifts. It's, isn't it amazing? You just but read. The mind boggles. The mind absolutely boggles. And you've got in, um, also a lack of, um, practical transport or public transport, shall I say, was a bugbear, you know, to the Emiratis in Dubai for a long time and for people visiting there. So for years, you know, jumping in a taxi and taking your chances in the traffic was your only viable option. But in 210, they opened what they call a, an ultra-efficient metro network. And, of course, it wasn't enough to just simply build one. They had to build the longest non-piloted system in the world. So there you go. But it's a remarkably cost-effective way of, of getting around Dubai now. And in Abu Dhabi, not to be outdone, they've built this new, um, if you like, almost like a, I guess, sort of um, upmarket amusement park is the way I can put it, on an island called Yas Island, which is a little bit out of Abu Dhabi. And it was primarily designed to house the Formula One track, which it, it, which it does. But then it thought, well, it's got to have another function other than just having the track, doesn't it? Of course. So thus Ferrari World was born and the world's largest indoor theme park and home of the world's fastest roller coaster, the Formula Rossa, rides at a breathtaking speed of 240 kilometres an hour. Mm. And then um, also you've got the Emirates Palace in Abu Dhabi, which is the world's most expensive hotel. So, you know, you can really do there. And it, apparently I'm not it, going to ask how much it would cost you to And stay. I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> but it cost about US $3 billion to build. Wow. But if you're interested, I was just reading today that you can do a, quite a lovely little trip outside of those two cities if you wanted to do the, of course you can do the desert safaris, which everyone loves to do and that they are really worthwhile and the belly dancing and the dance of the seven veils and the food and the camel rides and the desert, you know, bashing, etc. But you can get to a place that is actually part of, well, technically it's part of the United Arab Emirates or the UAE, if we can call it that, the Musandam Peninsula. But the very tip of that peninsula is governed by Oman. And it's very strategic because they can say yay or nay on who or who doesn't pass through the strait there and come into the Arabian Gulf. But you can actually do a trip out to this area. And I looked at a photo of it and it looks so different to when you look at the, the major cities of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And apparently it can be done as a, as a day trip, but you can also um, do it as an overnight trip. So it's sort of on the border with, with Oman and you're sort of away from the traffic and the city and all, all of that. And you're going into a coast of um, coastline of jagged outcrops and dramatic cliffs and 
you know, beautiful turquoise blue ocean. Um, and if you want, you can, there's a little hotel apparently you can break on the way that sits on top of the hill, which has got called the Golden Tulip, which has got commanding views into the Gulf. But once you get there, you can organise a cruise. There's resident dolphins that patrol the waters. Um, and another island called Telegraph Island, which apparently 150 years ago was an important outpost for the British Empire to boost the signal of their ambitious London Karachi telegraph cable. Um, so you can go out this little sleepy town of Kassab and if you're really adventurous, the local fishermen are happy to take tourists to remote beaches accessible only by sea um, and you just haggle for a price and so on. So I just thought that's an interesting thing to do if you have got a few days there or if you've been to Dubai before, it's your second visit and you're looking for an alternative. We'll be talking travel again next Friday after will. the one o'clock news. Thanks, Sally Lucas. Thanks, Jane. On to NURFM.